0: Well, thank you, Greg, and those that serve with him and leading us in worship, and thank you, amen, for taking up the offering. Hope you came in with the Bible this morning. If you never, if you don't come with the Bible, there's always Bibles in the back, feel free to use, or even if you use an electronic one, that is, uh, um, I just hope you have a Bible in front of you this morning, and I hope that you'll take it and turn with me to Joshua chapter 9. Joshua chapter 9. Hopefully when you came in, you got a copy of this bulletin on the back of that. There'll be some notes that if you want to look at those um, during our time together in the Word. But we're going to be in Joshua chapter 9. We've been walking through the book of Joshua in the last uh, several weeks, even months, looking at the story of uh, Joshua and the people of Israel as they're coming into the promised land. And for the last several weeks, we've been looking at the positive things, the things that point to success and the things that kind of give us an idea of what it means to be successful. And a couple weeks ago, I said that we weren't going to initially be turning to the, the negative and always being negative, 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 but there are some lessons um, towards the next part of Joshua that give us kind of an example of things they didn't do correctly or mistakes that they made that we might be able to learn from. So this morning I'm going to continue. We looked at um, the couple weeks before about one of the mistakes that they had made as far as the sin. They didn't repent of the sin, and so therefore the lack of repentance of sin caused defeat when it came to facing their enemies. And so it was just the lessons we can learn from that. And then this morning I want to do the same thing, and I want to look at some of the lessons that we can learn from the people of Joshua and how it is that we can be successful. We've been talking about through the book of Joshua, what it means to be successful. The world has ideas of what it means to be successful. You can talk to your neighbors, you can talk to your friends, you can talk to your family, you can talk to social media, and they will say this is what it means to be successful. But we've been asking the question, what does it mean to be successful in the eyes of God? How does God define Success. So, in Josh, we've been looking at some of these principles and some of these truths and some of these keys to success of what it means to be successful. Several weeks ago, I was having a problem with an electronical, electronic device at work. Couldn't figure out the problem, couldn't troubleshoot what the issue was. So, I called the manufacturer, I was trying to find the user manual online, I'd gotten on the interweb, and I'd searched off of the interweb, trying to find this user manual, could not find it, anywhere on the wide, wide world web of internet, and could not find it, so I found a phone number, and I called the technical support department, and as you know, the majority of the time you call, you're going to enter into the zone of automation answering. So you call and then of course you get the recording press one for this press two for this press three for this on and on and on and on so you try to listen to the one that you think is the best I press the number all of our representatives are busy your answer your call will be answered in the order that was received please be patient and you wait Finally, my turn comes up. A person answers the phone. I said, yes, this is what I'm trying to do. This is who I am. This is what I'm working on. I am trying to find the user manual for this particular electronic item. The individual on the phone said, oh, I am so sorry, sir. This is the wrong department. I need to transfer you. And without giving me an opportunity to say no or please don't or anything else, it just clicked and I was being transferred. Couple of rings. You've reached this department. All of our Service representatives are busy right now. Your call will be answered. The order is received. Please be patient. I wait on wait on hold. I wait on hold. I wait on hold. Finally, a person answers the phone. I say, well, this is, this is who I am. This is what I'm working on. This is what I'm trying to do. Oh, I'm sorry, sir. We don't handle that in this department. I need to transfer you. Click, and I get transferred. An hour and a half later, I finally talked to somebody to tell me that that heart has been deemed obsolete by the manufacturer, and there is not a user manual that is still available for me to access for that item, and they are sorry for my trouble. Goodbye. (laughs) Have you ever been in that situation? You just wanted to talk to somebody. You just wanted to have an answer. You just wanted to get a little help, and it seemed like everywhere you turn, every question you ask went unanswered, went ignored. My goal this morning as we look at Joshua chapter 9 is I want us to see together as a church that it matters the kind of questions we're asking and it matters whom we're asking the questions to. I put it there at the top of your notes just a phrase and I put it like this. Asking the wrong question or the wrong person can limit your potential success. So we are talking about being successful in the eyes of God. We're talking about being successful as a Christian and as a church. We need to ask ourselves the questions know, who are we asking the questions to? And what kind of questions are we asking? Are we asking questions like, how do we have more people in Sunday morning attendance? Are we asking questions like, how can we be more popular within the society or within the culture that we're in? Who are we asking these questions to? And what kind of questions are we asking? Here in the text in Joshua chapter 9, the people of Israel ask some questions. And I, I want to set it up like this because we're going to see the questions that they ask. And I put there in your notes, they're going to ask four primarily, four primary, primary questions. And I think these are questions that we ask on a regular basis. So let me show you these questions as we come to them in order. In Joshua chapter 9, it starts off there in verse 1 to set the context. And it said, as soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan and the hill country and in the lowland, all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. But, verse 3, when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn out sacks for their donkeys and and wineskins and worn out and torn and mended with worn out um, patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes and all the provisions were dry and crumbly. They went to Joshua in the camp camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, we have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us so you imagine the scene that is sitting there joshua and the, the the rest of the nation of israel they had crossed over to jordan they had already defeated jericho they had now defeated ai and the rest of the surrounding people groups in that area knew what was going to happen they knew what was going to take place they knew that the israelites were going to come and they were going to take them captive they were going to destroy them and they were going to take over their lands and take over their peoples and they got scared So the first two verses of Joshua chapter 9 tells us that these other kings said, we're going to fight back. We're all going to band together. We're all going to rise up and we're all going to attack Joshua and the Israelites. But then there was one group named the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites said, no, let's do something else. Instead of trying to rise up and fight them, we'll deceive them. We'll get some moldy bread. We'll get some dried up wineskins. We'll get some donkeys that look haggard and malnourished, we'll we'll get clothes that look rattered and tattered, and we'll walk into camp pretending to have come from a long, long ways away, and we will ask for peace. They decided to come in and use the ploy of deception. But what I want us to see this morning is what the Israelites say See, on this side of history, we have the full story. We know exactly what was taking place. We know what all was going on, but we do not and we fail not. And so many times we miss that perspective of Joshua. So it says there in verse 7, it says, But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us. Then how can we make a covenant with you? The first question that they're asking is a question I think that we ask on a regular basis. And it's the question of fellowship. It's the question of fellowship. We are surrounded by a world around us. Some of the world is friendly. Some of the world is hostile. Some of the world point us to Jesus. Some of the world point us to sin. Some of the world is consumed with themselves and their own idolatry. And some of this world is consumed with the things of God. But every day we are asking us ourselves the question can we, should we have a fellowship with this person or that? thing. In other words, we start asking questions like, what do we have in common? And so whether it's TV, or whether it's radio, or whether it's an activity, or whether it's a job, or whether it's a personality, we are always looking for and asking the question of fellowship. Joshua here in this passage, he looks at them and says, can we make a covenant with you? He is saying, we don't know who you are. We'll see that in a moment. He's saying, we don't know who you are. We don't know where you come from. We're not sure who you are. So we're asking ourselves a question can we have fellowship other places you'll see in the word of God that God is very clear that we are to be distinct as God's people God is very clear that we are to be set apart as Christians God is very clear that living a Christian life, a faithful Christian life, means that we live differently, we talk differently, we act differently, we behave differently than the world around us. But yet, we are continually asking the question, can we have fellowship with X or Y or Z? Maybe I'm the only one in the room that has ever faced that kind of question before. Somebody says, hey, let's watch a movie. And immediately you start asking, well, can I watch that movie? Is it appropriate for me to watch that movie? Hey, let's go to this restaurant. Is it appropriate for me to go to that restaurant? Is it okay for me to go to that restaurant? Hey, let's go hang out at so-and-so's house. Well, is that a good place for me? Is it not? There is always the question of fellowship. Joshua is asking the question of fellowship. I think so many times today we are asking the question of fellowship. Sometimes we ask the question because we're looking for reasons to compromise. We want to have fellowship with that person. We want to have fellowship with that thing. And so we're trying to find some way to justify or excuse what brings us together. Sometimes there's also another danger there and that is of syncretism. may not be a word that you're familiar with. Syncretism is just when you take two opposing or two opposite ideas and try to put them together. Let me give you an easy one. Jumbo shrimp. Those two things do not Go together. But when you think about it in the Christian sense, other people will bring up things that they will say, we're going to take something that is secular and we're going to put a Christian spin on it. Now, I'm not going to try to advocate for or advocate for against. I'm just going to give you some examples, just give you something to chew on and to think about. You think about the idea of Christian rock. When I was a younger kid, there was a band named Deliverance and they were a big name band and everybody thought, oh, Deliverance is such a cool thing. And you know what? You'd listen to some of Deliverance's music and you couldn't tell the difference between Deliverance and Metallica. But people would talk about that as being Christian rock. Some people would say, no, that is syncretism. There are things in this world that the world says, you know what, you can still be a Christian and still live like this. And I want to remind you this morning that syncretism is deceptive because syncretism tells us that you know what? We don't have to be distinct. We don't have to be set apart. We can just put a Christian spin on it and therefore it will be okay. But we're still asking the question of fellowship. Is that okay? So you notice in verse 7, uh, the men of Israel said, perhaps you live among us, then how can we make a covenant with you? Then, verse 8, Joshua comes into the picture uh, in, in, a, in a more prominent voice, and he says, who are you? Now notice how it's framed there in verse 8. They said to Joshua, we are your servants. And Joshua said to them, who are you? Are you and where do you come from? Not only were they asking the question of fellowship, but they're also asking the question of identity. They're asking the question of identity. They're asking the question, who are you? These Gimeonites, come before Joshua and the people. And they look at Joshua and the people and say, we want to make peace. We want to be friends. We want to have some type of a covenant between us. And they look at them and say, I don't know if we're supposed to have fellowship with you. And then they ask him a little more direct, more direct question, who are you? You see, in this world that we're living in, there are goats. The Bible talks about the goats as being the unconverted. The Bible talks about the goats as being the lost. And in this world, you also have sheep. The Bible talks about sheep as being those that are saved, those that are in the kingdom of God, those that are following after Jesus Christ, our chief shepherd. But then you also have got wolves first Peter talks about this idea that wolves are prowling around seeking for something or someone to devour. So the Bible talks about all three categories. You have the sheep, you have the goats, and you have the wolves. And so when we're moving through this thing we call life, we are constantly identifying who someone is or what something is. And we're always asking the question of identity. We're always asking the question, saying, and whether we use these terminologies or not, we're always asking the question: Is that person a sheep? Is that person a goat? Or is that person a wolf? And the problem is, is that names rarely reveal motives. So it couldn't, it can't be one of those things that you just say, well, what is their name, or what is the name of the company, or what is the name of the entertainment industry, or what is the name of this product, because that will tell me the intentions or the motivations behind it. We we hardly ever know until it's too late. And there's influences out there that do not have God at the center of what they do. There are commercial enterprises out there that they might try to look a part, they might try to influence a part, they might try to present a part to get you to buy their product, but they are not motivated by motivated by the principles and the moralities of God. And we need to ask ourselves the question, what is the identity of that person? What is the identity of that organization? What is the identity of that enterprise? Sometimes we start to buy into this idea, well, you know what, they're not for us or against us, this myth of neutrality. I think we're living in a day and age that nothing is completely neutral. Everything has a spin. Everything has a bend. Everything has a slant. So Joshua is looking at the people, the Gibeonites, and he wants to know, who are you? Where do you come from? He's asking their identity. They're asking the question of fellowship. They're asking the question of identity. But then it goes on. Notice in verse 9 how the text continues on. It says, they said to him, From a very distant country your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him and that all he did in Egypt. And all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan. To Shio the king of Heshbon and to Og the king of Bashan who lived at Asheroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, take provision, provisions in your hand for the journey and go meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now, behold, it is dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them. And behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals of ours were worn out; of ours are worn out from the very long Journey. The people of Gibeon come in and they say, oh, here's who we are. You want to know who we are? We want to know where we come from? We're going to tell you we're from a long distant country. We are no threat to you. We miss you. We, we mean you no harm. We are trustworthy. You can look to us. They had all of these stories and all of these lines and the question now comes of trust. Notice in verse 14, the first half of verse 14, it says, so the men took some of their previsions The question that was on the table was, do I believe you? This world is so adept of telling us, it's not going to lead us away from God. It's not going to hurt our spirit. We don't need to be legalistic. We don't need to be so right-wing Bible thumpers. We can be a little bit more relaxed. The world around us tells us that fellowship in God's people is optional. The Bible tells, or the world around tells us that we don't need to be as committed as we are to the things of God as we, the world expects us to be committed to the things of them. The world around us is trying to tell us we can just trust them. I want to remind you, friend, I want to remind you, brother and sisters, that your emotions and your feelings that so many people depend their actions and their opinions upon, your emotions and your feelings will lie to you. eyeballs have lied to me more than once I look at a big old spread of food and I say I'm hungry and my belly at the end of time says you weren't that hungry I lie to myself on a regular basis our emotions and our feelings lie and more than that our experiences and our traditions are not always what God wants for us And the question comes in is, who are we going to trust? These Gibeonites, they're looking at Joshua, they're looking at the people and saying, no, you can trust us, look at us. We're honest people, we're friendly people, we don't need mean any harm. And how many times do we find ourselves compromising, compromising, compromising? Giving, giving, giving. Backing up, backing up, and backing up. And the next thing we find ourselves in a position we never wanted to be in, because we trusted the wrong person. So they come in and they're asking the question, do I believe you? And that's the question that's before the Israelite people. Do I believe you? I want to remind you this morning that truths and facts are often different. Truth and facts are often different. You may say, well, why would you bring that up, Spence? Why does that matter? Well, the Gibeonites are presenting these set of facts. They are saying, look at our bread. It was fresh when we left. Look at our wineskins. They were new when we left. Look at our clothes. They were brand new when we left for our journey. Look at all of these things. We're going to present this to you and say, look at our facts. But I want to remind you that just because they say it is a fact doesn't mean that it is truth. Let me give you an example once upon a time eggs were considered to be good for you and then they were bad for you and then they were good for you and I don't know what they are now I just eat them because I like them because I don't trust the people that say they're good or bad for you I don't know and I'm just going to try them and I'm just going to say that's what I am going to eat once upon a time especially whenever I was younger and in school we had Pluto as a planet now, they say it's a star. Which is it? Is it a planet or is it a star? I don't know. Just this morning on a news feed that I look at, they have a story on there going back to the 19, it was what, 1986 I think is when the Challenger mission trip, the spaceship blew up uh, on its ascent into outer space. There was a story that I was seeing just this morning that said that new evidence suggests that the crew did not did not die immediately upon the explosion. Now tell me what kind of evidence you're going to come up with 20 years later that's going to change the narrative of the story. I don't know! But continually you will see somebody say that this is truth or a fact today and this is truth or a fact tomorrow. And the problem is, is that we as a people, we as a society, we can constantly be going back and forth, back and forth between facts and truths, truths and facts. The reality though is, is that fact and fiction are only separated many times by just a matter of time. It's just a matter of time. So what is considered to be a fact today may be considered to be fiction tomorrow. What was fiction yesterday might be considered to be a fact today. I'm going to tell you, it wasn't that many decades ago when they found the sexual perversions that are taking place in our society today. They saw them as perversions, not as biology. And now we're living in a day that they see these sexual perversions, what the Bible talks about it, they see it as being a matter of biology and not a matter of sin. And just because someone says it's a fact doesn't mean that it is truth. And that's the question we have to ask ourselves on a regular basis. Who or what are we going to trust? What is going to be the source of our belief? So you can imagine the Israelites, they have the Gibeonites right in front of them. They see it. They go, yeah, their clothes are tattered. Their bread is dry and crumbly. Their wineskins are all bursted from the trip. The leather gets old and it begins to crack. They look like they're haggard. They say that they're haggard. Do I trust in them? And there it comes to this fourth question that you see there in verse 14. It becomes the question of authority. It becomes the question of authority. So that asks the question about fellowship. That asks the question about identity. That asks the question about can, I, should, I, will, I trust you. And where it comes down to, it comes down to a question of authority. In other words, who makes the decision? So the world comes to you and says, make peace with us. The world comes to you and says, come have fellowship with us the world comes to you and says we want you to engage and entertain we want you to be a part of what we're doing the world comes to you with all these requests all these ideas all these suggestions the question is is who makes the decision and there in verse 14 notice again what it says it says so the men took some of the provisions but and i don't know exactly how your translation reads i'm just going to tell you how it reads from my translation it says but they are but did not Ask counsel from the Lord. But did not ask counsel from the Lord. The Jewish nation had come across the River Jordan not because of their might, not because of their ability, but because of the supernatural work of God on their behalf. They had come and they defeated the city of Jericho not because of their military prowess or because of their engineering or because of their uh, uh, physical might. It was because of the supernatural work of God. They had then gone up to Ai, and they, after they had repented of their sins and cleansed the, the camp from the sins that was brought, bring about destruction and, and judgment from God, what they do? They went up and defeated Ai. It was a simple task. Why? Not because of how awesome they were or how good they were, but because of the favor of God in their lives. Now these Gibeons come up, and these Gibeons start asking a question, and instead of them saying, we're going to ask God what he says, they look and say, no, we're going to make the decision of what we do. I think it's important for us to remember that when we look to a fallen world, we will get faulty answers. When we look to a fallen world for our direction, when we look to a fallen world for our decisions, when we look to a fallen world for truth, when we look to a fallen world for help and for hope, we will only get faulty answers. We're in a day and age where this moralistic, therapeutic deism is rampant in the world today. All of this idea that says your truth can be your truth, my truth can be my truth, and it's okay if they contradict because we are the determiners. We are the arbiters of truth. I'm going to tell you this morning, friend, there is only one truth. That is all that there is. There is only one truth. There is only one way to God. There is only one way to be saved. There is only one way to live faithfully before God. It doesn't matter what you think or what I think or what your neighbor thinks or what your grandma thinks or what your friend says it doesn't matter all that matters is what God says and how often do we get in our daily lives and we start questioning the authority of God well God says that but I feel differently well God says that but Dr. Phil says something else well God says that but Oprah thinks something different Well, God says that, but Whoopi said this on The View, and so therefore it's got to be credible. Well, God said that, but I think this. God said that, but I experience this. God said that, but a thousand different things. The question is, is who has authority in your life? Because if you look to a fallen world, you're going to get faulty answers. But if you look to a faithful God, you will get trustworthy answers. We have this... growing problem right now in the younger generation. And this growing problem that we're seeing that talked about just two weeks ago at camp, that of anxiety. And in no way do I want to minimize or make fun of anxiety, but we have this presence of this issue that's taking place right now in our young people where we have these young people uh, by the droves that are all of a sudden facing this anxiety and they're having anxiety issues and they're and they're being medicated and all these things and the world says oh this is such a huge problem anxiety 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 and you have all these mental health experts so-called experts out there trying to say well here's the solution here's the help all of these things and we're looking to the world for answers and the world is giving us ideas but they're not giving us answers Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The Bible gives us a remedy for anxiety. The Bible gives us a remedy when we're facing these issues and troubles in our lives. The Bible is sufficient for our daily lives and therefore the Bible is to be the authority of our lives. And so, but, so the question before the Jewish people is, is who has authority? The Gibeonites come in with a suggestion. The Gibeonites come in with an idea. And Joshua and the people then make a decision. It says in verse 14, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. So then notice what happens in verse 15. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live and the leaders of the congregation swore to them. So they asked the question of fellowship. They asked the question of identity. They asked the question of trust. They even asked the question of authority. They just decided that they were their own authority. So what did they do? They made a covenant with the people. The leader swore to the people. But then if you go on there, in verse 16, it says that after three days that they had made a covenant with them, they heard, they're just your neighbors just a few miles down the road. It says in verse 17, the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Reached their land and said, oh, oh, you're not who you said you were. And the Gibeonites said, too late. You've already made an agreement. You've already made a covenant with us. You've already come this far. You may never felt this before, but I've sometimes felt like I was trapped. Like I've taken so many turns to this point, I just don't know how to get out. I don't know how to get out of where I'm at. I know that I don't like being where I'm at, but there's times that I'm not really sure then what is the solution? What is the help? What is the hope? I get to the point that I just feel stuck. Either because I've made commitments or because I have given my word or because I have said that I'm going to do what I'm going to do and then I find myself getting more than what I bargained for. It's not what I thought was I was going to agree with and now I feel like I am stuck. Let's imagine what I... That's what I imagine Joshua and the people are feeling about this moment. They didn't realize the Gibeonites were their neighbors. They didn't realize the Gibeonites were part of the people that God had sent them in to conquer. They didn't realize that all these things had taken place. They had asked the question of fellowship. They had asked the question of identity. They had asked the question of trust. They had even thought about authority. But instead of relying upon the authority of God and God's word, they decided to rely upon themselves. So notice what happens. After the people of Israel reached the city in the third day, realized what is going on, you look down in verse 18, and it says that all the congregation murmured against the leaders. But all the leaders said to the congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord and by God of Israel, now we may not touch them. So what are they to do? It says that this is what we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we have sworn to them. And the leaders said, let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said of them. I want you to get the gravity of what is happening here. These questions have come before Joshua and the Jewish people. And because of their lack of leaning and yielding to the authority of God, they lived with the consequence for the rest of their days. So when you come to asking the question about fellowship, when you start to ask the question about identity, And when you ask the question about trust, those are all three good and worthy questions. But the question that I would encourage us as a church and the question that I would encourage you as an individual to ask first is what does God say? What does God's word say? What does God's authority say? Because it doesn't matter about what you think. It doesn't matter what you feel. It doesn't matter what your friends say. It doesn't matter what your mama says. It doesn't matter about what your neighbor is doing. It doesn't matter what they're saying on television. The question is, is who has authority in your life? And if it is God, then the question is, what does God say? Let me give you a couple of applications here that I think that we can see from this text. And the first one is, is that the world and the Word often contradict. The world and the Word often contradict. So when it comes to this daily life that we are living in, and this life that God has called us to, they often contradict. And we shouldn't be surprised. Jesus contradicted the religious establishment. The book of Acts, the early church, they contradicted the norms in societies. What makes you and I think that we can live faithfully before God and not be distinct from the world in which we live? Just think about what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 1. This is what Moses is telling the people before they go into the, cross the Jordan and go into the promised land. He says that when the Lord your God gives you, or brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, clears away many nations before you the Hittites, the Gergesites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mighty than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you, you defeat them, then you must devote them to de- complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. Moses is toward the people. When you come into the promised land, you are not to compromise. You are not to capitulate. You are not to try to make deals or bargain with the people that God has given you to conquer. And yet, you see right here in this passage that you have the world that is saying, oh, come be friendly with us. Oh, come make agreements with us. Oh, come in fellowship with us. The world is there saying, come and be like one of us. And the word of God is saying, be set apart, be distinct, be holy, for I am holy. Be obedient and faithful to God above all things. And we so often seem bewildered when the world and the word contradict. Even more so than that, we are unaware when the world and the Word contradicts because we don't know what the Word says. We don't know what the Word is teaching us. We don't know what the Word means. We don't know enough about the Word to know when it contradicts with the world. How embarrassing is that? When we know more about how to operate a phone than we do how to operate God's Word. How embarrassing is that? we are more knowledge about TV shows we are more knowledge about, about fictionary tales than we are about the word of God how embarrassing is that when we have so many people going to hell for an eternity apart from Christ lost as a goose knowing that they have no hope and no help turning to the world and here we are we have hope, we have help we have truth and we are so distracted with ourselves that we're not willing to tell someone else how embarrassing is that How embarrassing is it that we have 14,000 people within 10 mile radius of this church and yet less than 30% are in church on any given Sunday. How embarrassing is that? The word and the world often contradict. But then notice there's a second application that I want you to see and then we're going to tie this together. Our decisions impact others our decisions impact others. You may say, well, Spence, why does this matter so much about the questions I ask? Why does it matter about God's authority in my life? Why does it so matter what, how I turn and if I turn to God? It's just me. It just bothers me. It just affects me. It's no one else's business. Preacher, you quit meddling in my affairs. You have no right to be here. You have no right to put your nose into where it doesn't belong. Quit being judgmental. Quit bothering me. I want you to know that your sin never happens in isolation. My sin, never happens in isolation. Our decisions, our sins, our choices always affect others around us, which means that our decisions impact other people. So if you make a decision to rely upon your own authority and not to rely upon God's authority, that is not going to affect just you. It's going to affect you and the people around you what matters to us. Joshua and the people of Israel said, alright, Gibeon, we'll make an agreement with you. Okay, we'll make a covenant to you. Okay, if that's what you want, that's fine. You can imagine them saying, looking around the people that are grumbling at them, and you can imagine them saying, guys, it's not going to matter to you. You got someone to go draw your water. You got someone someone to cut your wood. Why does it matter? And then you look forward to Joshua chapter 10 and what takes place. All those other kings there in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 9, they decide that instead of going up against Josh and the rest of the Israelites, they're gonna go pick on Gibeon. <laughs> they said, Oh, all right, well, they want to make they, Gibeonites want to make friends with Josh and the Israelites, so we're gonna go and thump on them. And so they go up to Gibeon and they start to take advantage and start to whoop up on them. And so what do the Gibeonites do? The Gibeonites go oh, 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 and they start being all scared and start worrying about it like a Jerry Clower, and they say, Oh, come help us. And then what takes place? Here comes Joshua and the Israelites. They march all night long. They get up to Gibeon to help defeat and defend Gibeon. Next thing you know, Joshua and the Israelites are are fighting battles that weren't even their own to fight in that moment. And next thing you know, they find themselves being distracted. Next thing you know, they find themselves being deceived. Next thing you know, they find themselves far from where God wants them to be. Next thing you know, they find themselves and turmoil, and arguments, and disagreements, and conflicts that they never should have been in if they had not been where God wanted them to be. Years ago, I got on this Facebook spat. And I'm sitting there, and I'm arguing with these people on Facebook, and then I get to the end of it and go, what am I doing? I've wasted the entire day, and I'm not proving anything. I haven't gotten anywhere. And it was at that moment I thought, this is dumb. You know that can happen in your life. You can get off in air. You can get off in your own ways. The next thing you know, you find yourself fighting battles that you don't need to be fighting. Dealing with distractions that God didn't put there. Struggling with conflict. Struggling with anxiety. Struggling with stress. Struggling with situations. Struggling with oppositions. That was never there if you had just trusted and rested in the authority of God so what about us what about us here at First Baptist Wellston and what about you have you settled the question of the authority of God in your life or are you still asking the question on a daily basis when it comes to fellowship or when it comes to identity or when it comes to trusting Or this morning, today, you can honestly say, I don't have to ask the question of fellowship, identity, or trust. Because I have put God as the authority in my life, and whatever God tells me to do, that is what I will do. So if God says to do it, I do it. And if God says to stay away from it, I stay away from it. Or are we trusting in ourselves today more than we're trusting in God? Would you bow your heads with me?